This podcast is brought to you by Overstayer Recording Equipment, makers of professional recording instruments, including the Framework Modular Channel and MAS, for creative tracking, processing, and mixing applications. To learn more, check out OverstayerAudio.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Yeah, when I was only 17. 2008 was an event-filled year. Barack Obama was elected president. Satoshi Nakamoto introduced the concept of Bitcoin. Spotify was launched in Sweden. And an extra leap second was added to the end of the year. It was also the year that Portland, Oregon band Blitzen Trapper released their album Fur and the single of the same name. 21 years, 42 million streams, and heaps of critical praise later, the band's singer, guitarist and writer Eric Early discusses Fur and the song's humble beginnings. Enjoy. So from the cliffs and highest hill, yeah, we would gladly get our fill, howling endlessly and shrilly at the dawn. You'd made a bunch of records before this, before making the Fur album, but this album and specifically this song, I mean, it really changed things significantly for you. What do you think it is about this track that resonated with a wider audience? I really don't know. I mean, I've thought about it a lot. I mean, it's 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 almost like the kumbaya effect, you know? Like, it's a campfire song. And the story, of course, is just, like, been told many, many times throughout human history in different fashion, whether it's, you know, it's a mythological kind of, story whether it's werewolves or it's the the tale of nebuchadnezzar from the bible turning into a beast and living in the fields you know it's that kind of story where a man turns into a creature and then comes back so i think maybe just the ancient and universal aspect of the story married to this sort of like campfire kumbaya song i think maybe that's what's the appeal of it but i just don't know it wasn't a song i spent a lot of time writing you know like, I just sort of wrote it one night and recorded it in the same night on a four track. And that was what got put on the record, you know? So for me, I I don't really know much. I, I, it's it's a fluke to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they usually are, right? I mean, I think, you know, yeah. What, what did Sting say about every breath you take? I mean, he just sat down and wrote it in like 10 minutes and you know that was that was the track it, it is what you talked about is this this you know mythological story about a man turning into a beast but i mean it, it's i mean for me it's a song about nature it's a song about growing up it's a song about falling in love it's a song about coming of age and and sort of loss of innocence and a new chapter i mean there's there's a wistfulness to like losing your you know your freedom to be a beast right and be a there's a melancholiness to that song that i think lets me listen to it over and over again it it really taps an emotional place that i think is universal yeah i mean i was at a time in my life when i made that song where i, I myself was pretty feral i mean i i was homeless and i was living partially in a rehearsal space but half of the building was like derelict and was like leaking water and it was old portland you know and a lot of the times i would sleep outside it just depended and so i think when I look back on writing the song, personally for me, it had a lot to do with 
that sort of situation I was in at that time in my life, in my like mid to late twenties, um, you know, where I was just sort of, I don't know. That's the only place I can really see where it comes from, you know? Like, why would I write that song at that time? But to me, it makes sense with the life I was living. The, you were hopeful. There, there's hope there. Yeah. I was young and free and idealistic. <laughs> I mean, did you feel like you were onto something? No, because I was writing so many songs at that time, just all the time. So, no, it was one of like 30 songs that I'd written during that period. And was that written in the rehearsal space and recorded there? Yeah. Yeah. I had all my gear in our rehearsal space and I, I slept on the couch in there, but I mean, yeah, I was squatting basically. <laughs> and then I would kind of not stay there. Some, it, it just was, yeah, it was old Portland. I was kind of just, yeah, floating for a number of years. But how do you hear that song when you listen to it now? And did, what does it feel like? Or can you remember what it felt like writing it versus how you hear it now? I don't know. I mean, I haven't listened to that recording in a long time, to be honest. Um, when I play it live, it has a nostalgic feeling for me because I played it so many times and it's been around so long. And I just, I appreciate the song. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I can't remember writing it really or anything like that. So I don't, it, I don't feel like I have possession of it necessarily, but I appreciate the song and I appreciate it's, its effect on others, like its positive effect on others, you know? So that, that always feels really good. Yeah. I mean, what's it, what's it feel like to lose control of a song? I mean, that's that, that one just grabbed you and, and, and took you into new places and new territory in terms of audience. And I mean, it really, whether you wanted it to or intended it to or not, it, it, it's defined you and the band and, open many doors yeah it's true yeah when i think about the recording i think more about like how i recorded it because it's just so funny to me now thinking about about that song and how many doors it opened and how little like it literally didn't cost anything to record it you know it was recorded on a cassette tape that i'd had probably since the 90s that i was just retracking over and like i the loons in it like the bird sound, sounds and stuff is from an old vinyl uh, of loon sounds <laughs> that I sampled through an H and H tape delay from Jamaica that we'd gotten a hold of from like the fifties. There's just all these weird technical things that went into recording it that are so fun. That's kind of what I remember the most. <laughs> we used an 18 inch kick for that one. I believe it was this old sixties slingerling kit we had that later was destroyed on a tour. Sadly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the, the kick, the only drums in it is that kick. Um, yeah, but other than that, there's not a whole, there's just like two acoustic tracks that were, that I, I used my acoustic, which at the time, all I had was this 64 Gibson parlor guitar that, that has been in my family since 1964. It was bought new by my uncle. Um, and yeah, it was just two tracks of that and me singing. So it was live, like I sang and played it twice and, you know, du doubled it. A lot of the recording maneuvers at that time were influenced a lot by Elliot Smith's recording maneuvers, like his doubling of vocals, his like his Beatles influence, you know, like. And so at the time, it was kind of like, what would Elliot do uh, kind of thing, you know, <laughs> he would totally play the track twice and sing it twice. You know what I mean? <laughs> On the day that I turned 20. 
Was that a matter of like uh, just being efficient with the tracks or? Yeah, two tracks of one was vocal guitar, one was vocal guitar, one track was kick drum. And then the other track, I don't know what it was because the loons were stereo. It was probably, I don't know, I don't remember what it was, honestly. But yeah, I think I was probably just trying to make sure I didn't have to bounce anything because I didn't want to, I was like, oh, this is an acoustic song. I shouldn't have to bounce, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember what the fourth track was. Probably harmony, actually. I was always very adamant that vocals needed to be on tape, you know, and and drums. And other things I could let slide, but I was one of the vocals and the drums to be on tape. Interesting. So is that, are you still doing that? Is that? Is no, that... I, I've used tape here and there, but I, yeah, I don't really use it. And I haven't for a while. It's just not in a lot of the studios. And it's, and it's such a time, a depletion of time to use tape that I don't know. And I've been able to let tape go, like my love of tape. I've been able to let it go, you know, over the past decade. But yeah, early on, I was always just like, no, you got to have tape. If you don't, it's just not going to feel right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 so much to me. Always felt like so much about the process and the timing, as much as it did about the sound. Right. I think that yeah, and and like if you have a big studio budget like they used to have in the old days, that worked. But nowadays, like bands don't get a whole lot of money to play with when they're recording a record. So speed has become sort of of the essence. And the way I've gotten around it is, like I said, I'll record virtually the whole record at my house over like months. And so a lot of that space that is now kind of lacking in a bigger studio that you pay hourly for, I've, I've been able to make up for it by just doing it at my house and then go come back the next day and be like, that doesn't work. Let me redo that, you know? And then when I get the demo right, then I can bring it in and I already, I've already done all the like, I've already spent the time. And then the studio, I can be like, okay, I know, I know what I want to do. Let's just do it, you know? Right. Because I just, Man, I would love to spend weeks in a studio, but like, there's just not enough money to do it. Yeah, it, I see. I've seen this shift happen in studios where you just can't like sit there and spend all this time, which sucks. But <laughs> yeah, it's funny that a track like Fur. How long did it take you to record? You record that song in a night? Yeah, it was probably like three or four hours. Sounds great. It it has like such human connection. And has endured, I guess, is, you know, it's really, it's one of these tunes that now, you know, ends up on compilations and playlists and whatever, however people listen to music today. Uh, And it's a song that I went back and revisited for this and then send it to my 17 year old daughter. I love that about this tune, you know, and, and uh, I like that it uh, is a, a entry point for you and your music, but also makes a larger group of people that may never hear another Blitz and Trapper song feel good or feel something, you know? Totally. Congratulations. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> Were there tunes that you've that you've recorded in the past where you're like, this is the one? <laughs> <laughs> not really. No. I mean, I don't know. Not really. I don't, I don't think I've ever really thought of it like that. Yeah. Like, is this another fur or something? Anytime I've felt that about a song, I've always been wrong. And it's always some other song on the record. Not always, but occasionally it'll be an, another song on the record I hadn't thought about. 
that people connect with or something, you know? Right. Like the new record, that is exactly what happened. Like my least like prioritized song on the record was that song Requiem, but that's the one that's made it on the playlist and people sing along to it shows or the show we've done, you know, like, so like, I don't know. It's always just up to the audience to decide. It's probably best that way. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. You better be sure if you're making God a liar. I'm a rattlesnake, babe. I'm like fuel on a fire. So if you're gonna get made, don't be afraid of what you learn.